I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike and joining me in today's episode are Amory and Emmett from the My Wall Street Analyst Team. Today's episode is an ode to whom many view as the world's greatest investor, Warren Buffett. We discuss what makes the Oracle of Oma so good and discuss his most recent shareholder letter. We also break down the current legislation around stock buybacks and look at what went wrong for Goldman Sachs' retail banking ambitions. Amory Emmett, welcome to Stock Club. Great to have you on again. Um, I was looking back, so we're doing a bit of a Warren Buffett-themed episode today, and I was looking back at all quotes, and I realized that I think Warren Buffett might be the inspiration for the book and movie Fight Club. Really? So, so it's, I think it was 1985, uh, he said, because he has all these quotes and Buffettisms and whatever else, and he goes, rule one, don't lose money. Rule two, don't forget yeah. rule number one. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I was thinking yeah. about it and I was like, where? So, yeah, that's my little tidbit for the day. Do you think Warren Buffett is running a fight club? I think Warren Buffett is Tyler Durden Dur- <laughs> and, and Charlie what- Munger is whoever Edward Norton is. <laughs> Just one person. That works, I suppose. Yeah. I like what the- they're having. I mean, what age is it? Like Warren's 92. Charlie's 99. Uh, yeah. You know, the, whatever club they're running, I absolutely want to be a member. They're, yeah. Do you know what club they're running is the Eating McDonald's and Drinking Coke Club, yeah. as we have heard for the last while. Yeah, that's right. That's right. At one of the uh, Berkshire meetings, being as Berkshire is like, I think, a 10 or 12% shareholder in Coca-Cola, at, on, in front of every attendee, there was a can of Coke. And he said, look, ladies and gentlemen, I don't really care whether you like Coke or not, but could you just at least open the can in front of you so, it's, uh, <laughs> so we can book the revenue? <laughs> So, yeah. uh, but like, I think that's where we are for this week. It's been a slow enough news week. Um, so we decided to concentrate on Berkshire Hathaway. They do this annual letter every year and it's always this big event and there's always quotes you can pull out of it and investing models that are used for years and years. And it's kind of why Warren Buffett is called the Oracle of Omaha really. But um, before we get to the letter itself, let's just talk about Buffett's the kind of omnipotent figure in investing on Wall Street and everything we kind of do here. And for many, he's widely seen as the world's greatest investor. And But I, I just these for maybe people who don't know as much or is not as clued up, Emmett, why does Buffett get so much fanfare? Well, a lot has been written about Warren and I've read a lot about him and there are a thousand stories, uh, but there are a few that haven't been captured. And I have one, Mike. And it's not good enough for a biography of Warren, but look, it's good enough for Stock Club. And it's just between the three of us and our 158,000 listeners in the long tail of this episode. Right. I was a Berkshire shareholder for the longest time. And I I foolishly sold about 15 years ago because I figured Warren and Charlie were undoubtedly headed for retirement or or worse, 
the great exchange floor in the sky. And as I said, like Warren is now 92, Charlie is 99. And honestly, I'd consider buying again and holding until they're really old because those guys have the elixir. But anyway, um, despite being a former investor and having read Snowball and the making of an American capitalist and this book here, which I'm holding up to you guys on the camera, which is the essays of Warren Buffett and whatever else from the early days of my investing life. Uh, and I have a story, which I'll hold for now. It's the fact that it was my wife who was invited to a Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholders meeting a few years ago, as you said, also known as Woodstock for capitalists. And I'm not absolutely certain why she was invited and not me, but I think the founder of the business where she works and Warren are friends. And I've, I've definitely seen them together on TV or whatever. Would you believe that we're like both so fully immersed in our, both of our jobs that those details, like how did you get invited, didn't really get airtime when we were talking, <laughs> but she was, uh, she was away and she said, oh, I'm going to Berkshire Hathaway um, AGM. So off she went. And on the way, here's the story, as part of her job, she has to do a lot of flying stops here and there and everywhere, like Thailand or India or wherever. Now, as we all know, time zone jumping is especially tough uh, in short periods. So eventually, when she arrived in Omaha and got seated in the stadium, right up under the noses of Warren and Charlie, everything caught up with her and she nodded off to sleep, right? <laughs> She'll skin me alive for telling this story. I mean, look, I fell asleep on Avatar too, so anything is possible. Uh, and one, one of her colleagues captured the moment and I saw the evidence. Uh, nobody saw me sleep in Avatar 2, not even my kids, so I, I guess I'm a better fly napper. Anyway, do you know what woke her? <laughs> the sound of Charlie eating C's peanut bought her brittle <laughs> <laughs> with a microphone too close to his mouth. I mean, that stuff is loud at the best of times, but upgraded with a mic and 10,000 watts of amplification. And you have one seriously unique alarm clock. Um, that's, by that's the way, kind off, of like a bit of a nightmare to wake up to a hundred year old <laughs> yeah. man eating peanut butter brittle above your face. <laughs> but seemingly throughout the whole kind of show, I guess it is a show or a shareholders meeting, like there's just constant crunch, 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 then crunch, 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 crunch. And like, why didn't bat an eyelid? Because those two guys are like, they're like brothers. They're closer than brothers, I would expect. Um, by the way, off topic. They bought C's candy for $25 million in 1972. Guess what it had returned in pre-tax profit to them by 2014, nine years ago. So they bought for $25 million. What had it returned in profits uh, to Berkshire by 2014? I don't know, 10 times that, $250 million. Yeah, maybe 15 times that. C's is very popular with a certain group of people. Try two billion dollars. Two billion. Two billion. Sweet. Well, strictly one one 1.94 billion in bottom line profit, I think, before tax. I, I, and I'm going to guess that that's around three billion in contribution uh, today, because that's the 2014 figure, which was the best uh, I could find. That sounds bizarre. How much, mm. like, no. I doubt the I'll margins on, like, candy well, is you that might good, be. is it? Well, it's really it's, expensive candy. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy expensive. expensive. Yeah, but yeah. when you taste it, you know why, and you know why uh, Charlie munches his way through the AGM with it because it's just absolutely fabulous. And see, so C's has five hundred 
million dollars in annual revenue, but it that represents less than 0.1% of Berkshire Hathaway's holdings. Um, yet Warren has called this 100, I suppose, chocolate chain his prototype of a dream business. And this from the guy who maintains a stock portfolio worth hundreds of billions of dollars with sizable stakes in like the world's biggest companies. I, I think uh, Berkshire own about one eighth of Bank of America. They have, um, is it five or 7% of Apple? They have about 10% of Coca-Cola. Uh, what else? They have about a quarter of Kraft Heinz, 10% Cron- of Chevron, give or take. Half of Conoco yeah. Phillips or something as well now. That's right. Yeah. yeah. One one fifth of American Express. I mean, when you when you're buying a share in Berkshire Hathaway, you're buying um an ETF powered by the arguably two greatest investment brains, as you said, ever. So anyway, look, my my missus, whose name I with I will withhold, uh brought me home a load of Berkshire swag, which included Seas Candy with Warren and Charlie on the box instead of Mary, Mary and Charlie C. It was absolutely, it was so good. I mean, I, everyone loves C's peanut butter brittle. It's just the nicest thing in the world. But I, I mean, if you haven't tried it, you really, your life is lacking. You have to go to America and try it. But um, I didn't want to open it because no. it had its cellophane on. And it's just like, she also has this Obama O's upstairs in the attic, um, you know, early early prototype for Airbnb who were trying to make money while they figured it. And I'm I'm like, well, you know, cereal is cereal and candy is candy. It's very hard not to open a box of seeds candy, but we haven't done it and it's up in the attic and it's going to stay there. Yeah, I'd love to be at like your breakfast table some days and just be like, yeah, I just got invited to, you know. Oh, wait, no, Berkshire, it's not all glitz and glamour. Berkshire annual meeting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Why? Not a clue. Well, look, like, one what, of my, what kind one of, of my... what kind of letters do you get to your <laughs> Well, no, believe me, it is by no means glamorous, and it's not always like that. Uh, you know, post pandemic, there isn't a whole lot of global travel. But off topic, a friend of mine, uh, his 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 wife went down to to Wexford for the weekend, and he said to me, "I don't even know where she's staying." And I said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna give you one up on that, Phil." I rang my wife when I thought she was in California. When in fact she was in India, so like not knowing where your wife is when she's down in Wexford or Wicklow is one thing. Ringing someone who you think is eight hours to the west of you to find <laughs> she's eight, eight hours to the east of you is entirely a different ballpark. Anyway, it's not all glitz and glamour at all, Mike. And in fact, uh, we well, she and I barely ever travel anymore. <laughs> yeah, it really sounds like that after those conversations. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about the shareholder letter that, that came out uh, this week. Yeah. Uh, is there any gems from it? Mm. Well, as you said, on February 25th, which was, which was just last Saturday, Warren Buffett, it's Warren Buffett, published his highly anticipated 22 annual letter to Berkshire Hathaway, which he's been doing, I think, is it 60 years? You said in the, in the Six, intro, Mike? 58 years, I think, six decades. Oh, f- 58 years. Well, let me read you some excerpts because as ever, it's an absolute, uh, it's it's a wonderful, well thought out, deep, pensive reflection on investing from the greatest living mind, arguably the greatest living mind. I'll just read some of the excerpts which we have here and uh, which I have here. It says, at, at this point, he said, a report card from me is appropriate. In 58 years of Berkshire management, most of my capital allocations deci- decisions have been no better than so-so. 
And he goes on and says, our satisfactory results, satisfactory results, just let's just frame what satisfactory results are. It's over 3. about 3.8 million percent gain. So our satisfactory results have been the product of about a dozen truly good decisions. Now think about that. And then he goes on to say, that would have been about one every five years and a sometimes forgotten advantage that favours long-term investors such as Berkshire. And that's, you know, I'm going to read through a few other bits I highlighted, but that's the key takeaway. That's what we're out to do as individual investors. We will have satisfactory results in the form of hundreds or thousands of percentages gains in our investing life once we don't let the demons that is news and distraction cause us to sell at peak disillusionment. But anyway, let me push on. So he said that his satisfactory results have been a product of about a dozen truly good decisions. Um, He said in August 94, Berkshire completed its seven-year purchase of the 400 million shares of Coca-Cola we now own, he says, the total cost was 1.3 billion, then a very meaningful sum at Berkshire. Um, American Express, he said, is the same story. Berkshire's purchase of Amex was essentially uh, essentially completed in 1995 and coincidentally also cost 1.3 billion dollars. And he he elaborates on the dividends received from those two businesses, which are immense in in the region of 300 million, uh, you know, last year. These dividend gains Those pleasing, he says, are far from spectacular, but they bring with them important gains in stock prices. At the year end, our Coke investment was valued at five, sorry, 25 billion, while our Amex was recorded at 22 billion. Each holding now accounts for roughly 5% of Berkshire's net worth, akin to uh, akin to its waiting long ago. The lesson for our investors, he says, the weeds wither away in significance as the flowers bloom. Over time, it takes just a few winners to work wonders. And yes, it helps to start early and live in tier 90s as well. He's good. So, he's Oh, a, he's good. He's, he's good. Definitely. Can I push on? Can I give you a bit more? Coke is Pablo Escobar now at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, look, I'll give you a few more. He said that Charlie and I pretty much think alike, but what it takes me a page to explain he sums up in a sentence his version moreover is always more clearly reasoned and also more artfully and some might add bluntly stated here are a few of his thoughts um and and lifted lifted from a recent podcast as it happens um one of the things charlie said which Warren regurgitated was early on, write your desired obituary and then behave accordingly. And I think a lot of people have tuned, like there's variations of of that practice. I don't, I think some call it manifesting or journaling or whatever, but like what, what he said is write your desired obituary and then behave accordingly. He says, Charlie says, patience can be learned. Having a long attention span and the ability to concentrate on one thing for a long time is a huge advantage. Um, and he goes on to some wonderful Charlie quotes through the mouth of Warren. Um, he said, a great company keeps working after you are not. A mediocre company won't do that. And he said, Warren and I don't focus on the froth of the market. We seek out good long-term investments and stubbornly hold them for a long 
time. Uh, let me keep going, Mike, because honestly, I could read the whole thing, but I'm just trying to cherry pick a few. Uh, he said, there's no such thing as a 100% sure thing when investing. Thus, the use of leverage is dangerous. A string of wonderful numbers times zero will always equal zero. Don't count on getting rich twice. Um, and these, the, the reason these ones jumped out at me, uh, Mike and Emery, was because when I sat down, when we founded my Wall Street to write the six rules that we live by, these are them. Like, and uh, I learned from Warren. He wrote them and he said them before, and I, I learned through experience. But these, these, this mosaic of insights just keeps presenting itself year after year after year with every shareholder letter. And when you tune into a different investing master, whether it's Philip Fisher or John F., whoever, they all say the same thing. Um, let me push on. So, uh, he says, you have to keep learning if you want to become a great investor. When the world changes, you must change. And then he said, finally, I'll add two short sentences by Charlie that have been his decision clinchers for decades. He says, Warren, think more about it. You're smart and I'm right. And then he said, I'll add to Charlie's list a rule of my own. Find a very smart, high-grade partner preferably slightly older than you, and then listen very carefully to what he says. I love that because that's what my co-founder John Tyrrell did. He found a smarter, <laughs> older, higher grade Dub Dubliner, but he doesn't listen to me. But anyway, look, sure, we're nearly there. And and look, I'll, I, I could keep going on. Will I give you a few more insights from the letter or will we, will we pause? Pick, pick your best one there and we'll, uh, we'll call it that. Right, here we go. All right, the, fa the last one I'll go with, Mike, is one advantage of our publicly traded segment is that episodically it becomes easy to buy pieces of wonderful businesses at wonderful prices. It's crucial to understand that stocks often trade at truly foolish prices, both high and low. Efficient market exists only in textbooks. In truth, marketable stocks and bonds are baffling. Their behavior usually understandable only in retrospect. And that's, so that's, I mean, that's it. Like he, they, I could read the whole thing from top to bottom, but they are the things that I kind of doubled down on and reread to make sure they're, they're kind of stuck in the cranium. Yeah, that's great. And you touched on this there before, before you went off on your quote rant. Um, <laughs> was, it's fair to say that Warren Buffett has a distinct investing style. And I think throughout your investing career, you might've tried to emulate it, but you don't like the same companies, we'll say. How do your styles coalesce and how do they differ? I'm not a Buffett disciple per se, Mike, but I have a massive patience for investment. I buy shares with a time frame in mind longer, longer than the years that I have left. I, like I own Airbnb and plan to hold them for 100 years, which is illogical. Um, I also have the ability to concentrate on one thing for a long time, but only when I'm alone. Like when I'm alone, I'm intense, but when I'm with others, the extrovert gets the better of me. So I think patience and the ability to concentrate are two things that I would have in common with uh, with Warren and Charlie. And I feel embarrassed even trying to put myself in the same sentence as them. But you asked a question. And I think having no siblings, as I don't put you on the front foot for concentrating because that's kind of incubated when you're a child. So I didn't have any distractions in the household when I was a kid. By the way, Mike, on that point, sorry, on the point that we're speaking, uh, for more than one reason, I actually genuinely think I'm going to pitch the next Berkshire Hathaway in Horizon in March. Um, I'm 99% 
percent certain that I'm going to invest in it after I pitch it and just leave it there for 20 years. Um, so I would say to our listeners, please tune in for that if you can, which is code speak for please subscribe. Um, if you don't, if you don't know how, or if you want a time limited deal, and I'm making this up by the way, Mike, DM me on Twitter at Emmett L. Savage. So if you don't know how to subscribe to Horizon, just drop me a note. Um, so that's it. Yeah, that would that would be it. My ability to I'm very, very, very patient with investing. almost nothing else but for investing and I can concentrate very intensely when I'm alone to the point where hours go by and I look up and I I just think it was minutes I like that and also your shared love of McDonald's breakfasts (laughs) 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 okay then we'll close off this section Uh, I want you to come up Emmett if you can on the spot uh, with a Buffettism of your own so he always comes out with these great praises and quotes and like uh what is my favorite one is um only when the tide goes out do you see who's swimming naked so if you can come <laughs> up with a buffetism of your own no pressure thanks mike yeah uh one from me so in the analysis of a period spanning 25 years 98.6 percent of the 641 stock purchases i made fell below my buy price at some time after purchasing and the reason I've soundly beaten the market in my investing life comes down entirely to temperament so I would say the first five years of everyone's stock investing life are the most challenging the most disappointing the most disheartening however if you exercise patience discipline and a willingness to stomach those short-term fluctuations and those dips below your buy price, you absolutely will reap the rewards of compounding growth over time. I like it. Wordier than Warren himself. I don't know if it's going to inspire. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to inspire Fight Club too, but it's good. The message is there. <laughs> Warren would probably like make some comparison to how your frontal lobe isn't fully developed until you're 25, and then you all of a sudden see reason after that. It would be something like that. The first five years of your investing career. When you don't have a fully developed frontal lobe, that's very. Interesting. I don't know if that. that I love. I'm going to blame and all d- my mistakes on that. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what did Warren say? You only need like one good idea every five years. Yeah, I'm just I'm still waiting on mine. <laughs> um, but you'll get it. The thing is, you only need one good investment to change your life. You only true. need one. You only need a tiny amount of money in the next giant thing, and just leave it there under the mattress for the long term. Yeah. So we're talking to. The prime example of it here. Um, there was one section of the Berkshire letter, and I think it raised an interesting point uh, around the current discourse, and that's around stock buybacks. So Buffett obviously is a fan, and he isn't really too happy about current legislation around them. So the quote is, when you are told that all repurchases are harmful to shareholders, you're listening to either an economic illiterate or a silver-tongued demagogue. I've been called one of those, and you can guess which one. Um, Anne-Marie, can you give a quick explainer on what exactly is a stock buyback and what purpose do they serve? Yeah, a stock buyback, which you sometimes also hear like a share repurchase, is when a company uses its own cash reserves to buy back its own shares from the market. Um, This, in turn, you know, removes shares off of the marketplace, so it lowers the total share volume, and that can then you know increase things like earnings per share because there are less shares in circulation, which means everything is being divided by fewer shares. So it can make 
some important metrics look a little bit more attractive to new investors. And as a result, the demand for those shares may increase. But probably more importantly, it returns value to shareholders by reducing the number of shares in circulation. So, you know, in theory, everyone's price should rise. So it's kind of a way that a company rewards an investor for sticking around for the long haul. Um, It's kind of, in addition to dividends, it's really the most direct way for a corporation to, I guess, thank their oftentimes employees and then early investors who've been around for the long haul. Um, but it's arguably like one of the most important. I would say as a company reaches maturity and it looks into things like like stock buybacks, it's probably one of the most important moves um, for a publicly listed company. Mm, and much more tax efficient than dividends as well. Yeah. Um, so what's the current legal standing? Why are we talking about this now? And this new uh, stock buyback excise tax, what is that trying yeah. to achieve? Yeah. So in in Biden's State of the Union, I think that's kind of what put this in the forefront of everybody's mind. He mentioned the fact that he wants to raise the stock buyback tax. More specifically, he wants to quadruple it. Uh, It currently sits at about 1%, which was passed in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, And it aims to discourage buybacks in the hopes that companies would then consider keeping their cash internally to do things like raise wages or maybe increase employee benefits. Um, The 1%, though, that they passed uh, last year in 2021 really hasn't done all that much. Um, We've seen massive American corporations like ExxonMobil and Chevron and Meta announce huge stock buybacks uh, in 2022. Meta is is to the tune of $40 billion, which is pretty significant. And 2022 was actually the biggest year for stock buybacks ever. Corporations spent $1.2 trillion on them this year, which is that's pretty. That's, that's not a lot of. That's not a chump change. Um, but the main issue I would see for this, like the overall problem that they're trying to address with this legislation is the ever-increasing corporate profits as a percentage of GDP in the United States, which has been a problem since about the 80s. So I'm looking at a graph right now, which makes this easier for me. But essentially, if we break down the GDP of the U.S., before we adopted the Chicago School of Economics, which essentially the Chicago School, which became popular under the Reagan administration, is the idea that in pure free market capitalism, there should be absolutely no regulation. So the government should be completely hands-off. And it's the idea that the market will correct itself. So if a monopoly rises, eventually, you know, they'll get lazy and they'll get caught up by a smaller company that comes that can come and disrupt them and they will dissolve and no longer be a monopoly. So but prior to this kind of theory all kicking off, um, the percentage of GDP that was composed of wages and salary sat in and around 50 percent, which is where you would like it to be. And the percentage of corporate profits of GDP sat in and around about four to six percent. That's kind of the comfort zone that you want it to be at. But since we've adopted this and since a number of regulations have been stripped back, that has risen. It's risen since about 1985. And now corporate profits as a percentage of GDP are sitting in at around 10 percent, while wages as a percentage of GDP has fallen down to about 42, 44 percent. Not ideal, particularly when we're in this moment where there's a considerable economic restriction on the lower class. And also people then view this as, you know, being harmful for the working and middle class, which you should obviously hope to elevate in the United States. Interestingly, actually, Warren Buffett addressed this as being a huge problem. He predicted this in 1999 when he stated it would be wildly optimistic that believe that corporate profits as a percentage of GDP can, for any sustained period, hold much above 6%, and this would justifiably raise political concerns. So this is something on his mind as well. But essentially what this data is telling us is that more and more money in the United States is moving towards investors or people up at the top of the economy, and that can obviously compound wealth inequality. So the Biden administration is looking for ways to 
address this. And the one that they have opted to go with is let's discourage stock buybacks. Let's discourage these businesses from taking this cash and investing it back into their investors. However, I would argue that's not the real issue here. And I would say that because I wrote about this maybe six months ago when we were discussing Ticketmaster and how Ticketmaster is a monopoly. It has this huge control over the market because it was allowed um, to consolidate with Live Nation, which is another huge player in its industry. And what that does is when you allow monopolies to be created in a number of sectors, these companies become extremely large and they generate a huge amount of cash. And the larger a company is, the more market share it has, the more likely it is to generate more cash because it can have fewer employees. It doesn't have to, you know, it can charge more because it's not attempting to be competitive with a smaller up-and-coming company. It has all these massive advantages. And this actually was solidified by a, a, a study that was done by economist David Arterer. He basically said the more market share a company controls, the higher its profit margins will be. He did a massive, massive statistical analysis over about a decade, and he proved this point. So in my opinion, the way to fix this isn't to go after the the stock buybacks. It's to bring in regulation to break up monopolies and to prevent acquisitions that will create monopolies. And in that way, the U.S. should maybe move back a little bit from the Chicago School of Economics way of thinking, which was enacted under the Reagan administration. Mm, that's good. I like that. Um, yeah. So talk to me about this stock, stock Buyback Accountability Act, which was just announced. What does this bill entail? And do you see it passing or making an impact? Yeah, so this would be the bill that would bring in that quadrupling of the tax. So Biden specifically said in the State of Union, I want a 4% tax on stock buybacks. Um, It would also require companies to disclose more information about their buybacks, including the amount of shares that they will be repurchasing and the reasoning behind their decision. Like they actually have to put that on paper and give it into the government. The likelihood of this passing is super low because there's a Republican-controlled House at the minute and they tend to move away from any kind of legislation that will punish investors. And a lot of Republicans tend to be hyper, hyper free market capitalists. You know, they think that, oh, the market will correct itself if this is an issue. Um, Additionally, Republicans have a pretty great bargaining chip at the minute with the looming debt ceiling. So it's not exactly the time to be looking for favors. Um, So it's probably not going to pass. But I do think it's correct for the Biden administration to be addressing this issue of why is so much capital flowing upwards? Why is it going up towards investors? Why is it going up towards the C-suite? Why can we not maintain any kind of capital in the middle of a a company? But I would argue that it's from the monopolies. It's from the complete lack of regulation within the United States. Yeah. You think they're going going at the wrong target, basically. That's great. That was very interesting. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Um, okay, so this is your weekly reminder. If you haven't already, to sign up for our newsletter, Charging and Fearless. It's free email. You'll receive a brand new stock pitch every week, and we promise it's going to be the most valuable 30 seconds you spend in your inbox. This week's email is carrying the subject line, don't be a hoser, catch the next Lululemon. I feel like I'm supposed to say that in a Canadian accent, am I? Hoser. 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 Don't be a hoser. Um, So yeah, that's Amory's write-up on a very interesting, fast-moving fashion brand coming from Canada. So if you want to hear about that and look at all our past picks, just sign up to Charging Fearless in the show notes today. Um, up next, we've got mailback, Mailbag, and it is Goldman Sachs we're talking about this week, which is having a bit of a disaster when it comes to its um, retail banking ambitions. So the bank's consumer-facing product, Marcus, was long seen as a growth story, but late last year kind of dissipated in a reorganization and was pretty much written down as a complete failure. Um, a lot of responsibility falls at the hands of CEO and burgeoning DJ David Solomon, uh, <laughs> Amory. What happened with Marcus and is Solomon in trouble? Yeah. So the, the Marcus brand, as you said, was launched in about 2016. It was part of Goldman's efforts to diversify its revenue streams. They basically said, you know, we're quite vulnerable to the market's movements and maybe we could shore this up a little bit and make ourselves a bit more stable. Um, the move was proposed directly by CEO David Solomon. And um, the product offerings, they seemed pretty simple. Like they started off with personal loans and high yield savings accounts and eventually launched some pretty like basic, easy to use managed retirement accounts. So things like a Roth IRA. Um, this move into consumer banking, though, isn't the most natural for Goldman Sachs. I mean, as anyone who lived through 2008, I'm sure vividly remembers, Goldman Sachs kind of came out with this horrible reputation. Uh, you know, it was traditionally seen as like, oh, the New York fat cat kind of bank. And I don't think regular people are all that interested in putting their money there. Um, but this kind of Marcus brand was meant to be, oh, you know, this is the friendly, easy way for you to be in business with Goldman Sachs as a regular person. Um, they spent an awful lot of money developing this thing. And, you know, it was slow to take off, but by about 2019, the brand had originated over $5 billion in loans and held about $50 billion in deposits, so that's not too bad. However, as you said in the intro, in late 2021, the bank announced that Marcus would be reorganized and was largely written down as a failure. The bank actually took a $500 million hit to its earnings as a result of the restructuring, and the lending wing of the brand has been effectively paused, and it's been rumored that they're trying to sell it off to somebody else. It's now worth about $4.5 billion. Um, They've also seen Marcus kind of just get rolled up with a bunch of other underperforming assets and be pushed away. So it's now sitting within the asset and wealth management arm, which now sits within the platform solutions segment, which is not exactly the you know what Goldman would be known for. It's very much they're trying to put it on a back foot here. Um, and it's worth discussing that this is not the first D to C thing that Goldman has struggled with. They also underwrite Apple's credit card, which has been very popular in the United States, except it came out in. 2022, they lost $1.2 billion on the deal. Apple Apple took some of the absolute cleaners, didn't they? Yeah, Apple absolutely knew what it was doing when it wrote that contract. And Goldman had to disclose that it cost them $350 to acquire a new customer. And it doesn't cost Apple anything. Like, that is impressive. And that falls Um, under David Solomon then as well, I assume. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, he was very much kind of the person who pushed this, oh, you know, we should diversify, we should go D to C. Um, so I would say that his position doesn't look crazy secure at the minute. Um, I did read an article on this topic that was with CNBC, which <laughs> stated a number of people from within Goldman Sachs had had said that the decision to launch Marcus came from a single conversation at a party at Solomon's house one summer. It was just an idea he had, and I think he kind of said it off the cuff, and then the entire company was like, okay, I guess we have to do this now. Was, um, it, was it a conversation, or was it implied he was DJing to his adoring I fans? hope it was. Well, I hope he had one hand on <laughs> on his headphones, and like, then he just like offhandedly doing right said to now someone. With, what, the yeah. one ear off? <laughs> just one ear off, and then slim. he- he offhandedly said to someone, hey, I think we should make an app and that app should have a savings account for regular people. I think that would work. And it should be called Marcus for some reason. Why is it called Marcus? Uh, Marcus, I looked this up, is uh, one of the original co-founders' first names, I think. Yeah, but it just gives – like if your bank was – like if your banker was named Marcus, you maybe wouldn't trust him because he might use your, he might use your money to buy DJ equipment. Yeah. You know, like Hold that's on, guys, what it sounds like. Back up the bus. Why are you guys calling him a DJ? What's happening? Oh, have you not he, heard this? CEO yeah. Goldman Sachs is like a properly hire for a wedding. Well, sorry, I don't know, hire for a wedding, but <laughs> like a proper <laughs> DJ. Like, yeah. He, uh, was he DJing at Lollapalooza or something last summer or this summer? Yeah, but I think like uh, the 11 a.m. 10 11 a, session. Yeah, like, not, 11 a.m. Not people like are still, still waking up. Still going for a wedding before. DJ is yeah. quite the stretch. <laughs> you, you see him out, I think it's out in uh, the Hamptons during summer. He's oh, like yeah. losing his mind behind the text. I, I don't did think, not know that. I don't think the yeah. partners like it at all. Which we have to get David kind of Solomon into my Wall Street to do spins and discs. <laughs> I don't know if we can afford them. <laughs> I know. No, um, I don't know if it's those kind of weddings he's doing. 400 euro an hour. That's what you pay a DJ. I mean, that's mm. may, maybe a bit more. I think that's fair enough. And yeah, I'll, I'll like, he he would recoup one one person's worth of acquiring an apple credit card user so maybe he'd be happy yeah um but essentially now so the, all of these direct-to-consumer things have all been lumped together in the platform solution segment which he said in the most recent earnings call should maybe break even in 2025 but it's already lost three billion dollars when they were setting it up so it's not great not to mention goldman's overall business hasn't done well in 2022 profits were down a whopping in Q4 of this year. So he's kind of facing pressure on all sides. However, he did just take a 30% pay cut. Um, He's only making $25 million next year. Yeah. How nice. Great for him. Plus plus an extra bit of cash on the side for the few Of course. And then (laughs) right around... Probably if you bought mitzvahs, you know, he could be doing very well. Um, but he also, at the same time, he announced his big pay cut. Very, like he's a selfless king. But at the same time, he also did lay off thirty two hundred employees. So you know, it's you, you, there's there's highlights and lowlights. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. This this reminds yeah. me. Did you see the bit? I, I, I'm bad for this where I read a headline and I don't read a ti- don't read a full story, so I'm not sure if it's. Uh, verified but salesforce is going through all these layoffs and it's actually paying matthew mcconaughey 10 million a year as a consultant is it <laughs> i'm not sure what have you true. taken are you kidding me <laughs> i think what I've is he read consult that on <laughs> consult talking on cool stuff man um I, i'm not <laughs> sure if that's confirmed but they were apparently benioff loves uh <laughs> just surround himself with celebrities and stuff that's what celeb brilliant. should my Wall Street sign up for advice in the spirit of getting M- Matthew McConaughey for for Salesforce? Who should we sign up for advice? What's our our equivalent? <laughs> What's um, our budget? Yeah. D- David yeah. Solomon. 
Get him <laughs> into Fanning. DJ. We could do a soundtrack. I think Dave Fanning is probably more in our budget. <laughs> anyway, he's he's great. He's a he's an A-list Irish DJ, commentator, radio presenter. Oh, he's well, more experienced DJ than David Solomon, anyways. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, okay, let's finish for, out. Oh, hold on, the Matthew McConaughey contract is for creative help. Creative, creative help. help. I've been meaning to read his autobiography. Apparently, it's very good. Uh, I yeah. would I'd put it down lower on your list. It's kind of a love story yeah. to himself. Oh. <laughs> um, look, we'll get, we'll get past Matthew McConaughey and we'll get into elevator pitch to close out the show. Uh, so this is kind of inspired by the Warren Buffett and the Berkshire talk. So I want one of you to pitch me a very boring, safe stock that Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett would love. Uh, and then for balance, I want the other one of you to pitch me the most speculative moonshot of a stock you can come up with. Um, so whoever wants to go first, fire away there. I have the boring one. So would we like to start boring? Yeah, let's, let's we'll go okay. low and then. When we did the planning session for this episode, do you remember what type of company, when you made an example, when you were saying, do you remember what type of company you said, oh yeah, uh, like that would be a boring company. It makes like bolt nuts or something. You I said, said tungsten carbide drill bits and don't go <laughs> too hard bits. on that because a very good friend of mine and listener and backer of my Wall Street owns the world's no, biggest. Don't don't yeah. worry. I don't have drill bits, but Mike said, sure, look for a cardboard company. Oh, yes. So sorry, I, yeah. I, I don't have Car- a cardboard oh, yeah, company, Smurfit? but I have Smurfit? something very similar. I have the Sealed Air Corporation, which oh, has, yeah. owns the patent for a very famous brand. Anyone like to guess? Sealed Air. Yeah. Uh, um, Tupperware. Famous brand. That's a good guess, Mike. Um, no. I don't even know what Seal There is. What is Seal There? God, I'm the you, village idiot on today's when episode. I tell, when I tell you what it is, you'll be like, oh, yeah, that is uh, Seal There. Spray bottles, things. Uh, no. Aerosols, no? Uh, no. What is it? Bubble wrap. Bubble wrap. Oh, yeah. It's coming to my mind, but I thought no, yeah. too obvious. They own the patent bubble wrap. Uh, Yeah, they invented it back in the 1960s. There's a Um, patent on that. Yeah, there's a patent on bubble wrap. I'm sure there's a lot of Chinese, actually global makers of bubble wrap who are sidestepping that patent. Yeah, but you can't use the name bubble wrap. Oh, I see. So you're buying Uh, a knockoff. Yeah, there you go. Um, The bubbles are soft enough. The air hasn't a perfect mix of oxygen and nitrogen. (laughs) (laughs) And I did read on the Wikipedia page that it took them a while to perfect bubble wrap because they had to make a certain plastic sealant that would seal the air in. Otherwise, it naturally deflates. So there you go. I'm sure that's good for the environment. Um, So Sealed Air Corporation invented bubble wrap. So that's one segment of the business. They make packaging materials for traditional shipping. Um, That's that's called the protective segment. Um, But then they have a second one, which is the food segment, where they make the protective plastic to seal in foods. They also own a patent for that. It's called Cryovac, and uh, it extends food shelf life. It's used to, like, seal in meat and stuff like that. So – yeah, that was also invented in the 1950s, which I would believe. We loved putting plastic in things in the 1950s um, and was originally created to help make turkeys more shelf-stable for when we had to keep them between Thanksgiving and Christmas in the United States. So very good. Um, 
Business has a market cap of $7 billion. It made $5.6 billion in revenue in 2022, which was only a 1.9% year-over-year revenue growth. But they had a really good year the year prior to that with 12% revenue growth because obviously we were shipping loads of stuff back then. Gross margin of 30%. Operating margin is 16%. Uh, The stock is down about 26% in the last year, and it pays a modest dividend of 1.5%. It's not a performance machine in any sense. The stock is only up 13% in the last five years. So I would not see this going into horizon at any point. But it has an interesting tailwind at the minute, which is the the food end of things. There's two big pushes at the minute. Like we're trying to reduce food waste. So that's important. So if we can seal in food, that's pretty good. Um, And there's also a massive labor shortage in meat packaging in the United States. I don't know if you guys have seen these reports, but a number of outlets have stated that there's huge child labor concerns in the United States at the minute because children are working in meat packaging facilities in the U.S. because no one else worked there. I saw a photo in the New York Times a couple days ago of just a 13-year-old kid just sweeping in the meat packaging plant. So that's not great. So the solution to this is automation. And luckily for Sealed Air Corporation, they make machines that automate the process of sealing meat and other food into packaging. And so this is their 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 new way forward. Essentially, they're going to adapt into a razor and blade model, which we like here. You know, that's pretty good. And even better, it's going to help their margins a bit. So their margins are not bad at the minute, but, you know, you plump up the, the, the operating margin that doesn't hurt at all. So um, this is something they've already been working on. So the operating margin in the last two to three years has increased from 12% to 16%. That's nice to see. They're hoping to continue that. Between 2017 and the end of 2024, the EBITDA is expected to grow by 6.5% per year. Free cash flow is also accelerating to more than $600 million in 2023. This will help them pay down a bit of debt. So they're hoping that it should fall below $2.9 billion. Uh, that's a lot of debt for a packaging company. But anyway, they're trying, to, they're trying to manage that with a bit of free cash flow. And so in 2025, the company aims to do about $1.6 billion in EBITDA, which implies a 9% compounding growth rate per year starting in 2017. So that's not too bad to see. And fingers crossed, they will sell about $500 million in equipment and services in, in uh, 2023. And they're hoping to pass the $1 billion mark in 2025. So a very old company, traditional company, slow moving, kind of hoping to have its second act. Nothing too, nothing too spectacular, but definitely stable. Yeah, I like that. I, I think you, uh, you, you got the brief down. I asked for a yep. very boring company and you gave me the maker of bubble wrap. Yeah. And meat <laughs> packaging. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? All right, Emmett, um, you're going to have to perk us up after that one. What do you got for Okay, us? right. Look, first things first, if you really, really feel you have to buy one of our two pitches every month, stop listening now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is the disclaimer, the legal, the legalese. Like, right. You know, like nobody buy what I'm about to say. Okay. Unless it turns out to be a winner, then I'm going to, I don't know, maybe put posters up and go, did you hear what I said? And they we'll post, uh, we'll post edit this bit. <laughs> right. Anyway, so, well, you said um, to me, pick a risky stock and I pick ri- risky stocks for a living. So I wanted to find something where, I don't know, my, my nose started to bleed like 11 out of Stranger Things. So I, I thought, <laughs> well, what 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 is risk? Well, small unproven, uh, pre-profit or, you know, yeah, pre-profit, look and change the world and preferably listed in the last few days. So there's, <laughs> it's a tiny company that nobody heard of. It's a short list. Yeah. No, it's actually surprisingly a long list. But anyway, snail.com, snail.com listed about four months ago. Its market cap is about $57 million. 
Like it's the price of a, a load of breakfast rolls from Centra on the N4. Like it's tiny. It's $57 million business. It develops, it markets, and it publishes and distributes and all the rest. Interactive digital entertainment for consumers, which is also known as computer games. And when I looked through its income statement in 2020, it had a total revenue of $125 uh, million dollars. That fell to $106 million in 2021, and it's trailing 12 months right now is $82 million. And it has, it was, it had pre-tax profit, I guess, in 2020 of about $36 million. It dropped to $9 million. And lo and behold, for the trailing 12 months, has fallen to seven, minus seven. It's losing seven million. And it decided we better float. Now, I, I, I <laughs> there's so many questions, but let's not go there. I mean, like, all right, okay, we got to float it. So, yeah. um, I'd like to be. So I'd like to be in the the room when they were doing up the pitch decks and all the charts are just like plummeting to the right. Ninety percent, ninety percent of its revenue comes from a one title called Arc. ARK. Did did either of you guys ever hear of the game ARK? I certainly no. didn't. No. But anyway, look, based on the declining revenue and profit, I wouldn't touch it with a with a barge pole. But you ask for risk, and there you get it. So it's just out of the traps. It's barely floated. It's down fifty percent. It's microscopic. It's smaller than microscopic uh, micro cap. It's nano cap at at fifty million dollars and change and uh i don't think it's going to be a winner at all but you want to know please <laughs> and there you got it <laughs> i asked for risky i was hoping for a risk reward situation but just a risk risk situation i think is what you gave me i have the longest as you know the longest list of stocks i watch i i review hundreds and hundreds of stocks every day not not at, in any great depth as you can imagine i scroll i scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and i did i i could see the conveyor belt of stocks that charging and fearless has lined up and locked and loaded and there was some overlap there i can see my research queue or line for horizon and i eliminated those and then i looked at uh american or non-american businesses adrs and there was some like i i was kind of gonna I, I thought about pitching aston martin um one of the most valuable brands in the world and absolute truffle disillusionment. It's gone bankrupt so many times you couldn't even believe it. <laughs> but I decided snail, snail.com. Snail. Yeah. Okay. All right. We're going to leave you on that. Uh, Sorry think, to disappoint you, Mike. I think fans, the disclaimers so. don't invest in snail.com. <laughs> 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 If you came for the elevator pitches today, lads, I'm sorry. I'll come up with better ones next week. I thought that right, was okay. going to be so. My tweet, my tweet teaser has to really big this one up. That played out better in my head. <laughs> do you do you like stocks? Don't listen to this. Episode. <laughs> you like making money? Well, we've got the stock for you. <laughs> right. Uh, thanks for listening. And remember, if you have any questions you'd like us answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle. Please get in touch because you yeah, clearly aren't know. coming Please. up with good ones ourselves. Yeah. Um, the well you can find dry, us, the music have stopped singing. Uh, <laughs> go on. What are we saying, Mike? Can, you can, can find, find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. Also, make sure to sign up for Charging a Fearless to get the free stock pitch in your inbox. And thanks for joining us today. We'll talk to you next week. I can follow for more. (laughs) (laughs) 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.